You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So we were talking about Jay buying a Tesla and how it turns out that there's a market for Teslas now that are so hot that if he sold his Tesla, he'd make $8,000 off the Tesla that he just bought. And, uh, and so, you know, James and I were saying, you should just go out and buy a ton of Teslas and try to flip them. Turns out Tesla is anticipating that and they will ban you. But then James said, but then the market is at some point going to crash and you're going to be stuck with 100 Teslas. And so what that made me think of was one of my favorite historical figures. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever heard of Emperor Norton, Emperor Joshua Norton? Is that the Emperor of San Francisco? Yes, the Emperor of San Francisco. I, I, you might have told me this story a long time ago. Oh, <laughs> so, but, but to but tell it because I don't, I have no idea. Okay, we've spoken enough that I'm repeating my stories now. So, this guy, Joshua Norton, he is South African and moves to San Francisco. This is uh, early mid 1800s, and uh, he comes to make his fortune. And he's a businessman, and he's doing pretty well. And then he gets this hot tip. There is a rice shortage in San Francisco. And so the price of rice has skyrocketed. And he's aware of a boat coming to San Francisco with rice. So he decides to buy it all at this incredibly inflated price. And he figures that he's just going to make a ton selling rice. And so, so the boat arrives, and uh, he gets his rice. And then unexpectedly, a whole bunch of other boats with rice arrive and the price of rice drops and he loses all his money and he disappears for a while. And then he reemerges on the scene when he walks into a newspaper in San Francisco and hands them a declaration declaring himself emperor of the United States. And he's wearing, he's wearing like a kind of tattered army uniform. And uh, the newspapers at the time, you know, these are just free-flowing enterprises. They decide to run this thing, so they do. And then people start treating him as the emperor. He, he's, I mean, he's basically a homeless person, right? Like he's, he's, living, in, he's living in some kind of shabby uh, uh, housing. But he is charming and he starts writing other declarations that newspapers start running. And then because people love his declarations, additional newspapers, because, you know, this is like at a time when every city had like 15 newspapers. So other newspapers start running like their own made up declarations from him because they just want to be in on the action. And uh, and he becomes this this figure, uh, this kind of figure of lore. And people start treating him like the emperor. He eventually uh, adds a new title, which is he is emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. <laughs> and he is invited to preside over local functions. 
he starts issuing bonds that people buy. And then when the Transcontinental Railroad is built, newspaper reporters from around the country come out to San Francisco to report back on what is out there because, you know, it used to be so hard to travel west. And uh, they, they arrive in San Francisco and they, they, you know, they basically ask, like, what is there to see here? And everyone introduces them to the emperor. And so then he becomes a kind of national figure for a while. And, uh, and then he, he just sort of abruptly dies in the late 1800s. Um, and uh, and I, I love this story because, you know, I feel like he's one of the very earliest versions of this phenomenon that we have in America, which is people just declaring themselves famous and then being famous as a result, right? I mean, like sometimes all you have to do is really um, position yourself and own it. And if you are creating enough of a story that people want to be part of, they will join you. And that is the legacy of Emperor Norton. So that's that's interesting because what lessons can we get from that? For instance, is this a random phenomenon? Like in the sense that maybe a thousand people declare themselves emperor or king or Jesus or something and he's mm-hmm. the one that, by luck, kind of organically survived that first wave of, uh, oh, I'm famous, and everyone's saying, no, you aren't, but then he he did become famous. Or is there yeah. something he did that we could learn from as like, hey, if I want to sort of monetize who I am this, and mm-hmm. people to listen to me, even though I've not really accomplished anything, I wonder if there's something he did that was a little out of the ordinary, that he probably had a lot of self-confidence, he's probably a little insane, Right. Definitely a little insane. That's a really good question. So part of this must be left to speculation because the majority of the records about Emperor Norton have been lost because there was a fire in San Francisco and and, and most things were lost. So I, I once tried to write a book about him, but there just wasn't enough really? surviving information to put together like a full narrative. Oh yeah. Like I, I spent a long time in like the microfiche room in the New York Public Library. But I, I think that you're onto something here and it's, it is true that there's not a there's not a formula such that you could always create success out of absolutely nothing. Otherwise, everyone would declare themselves emperor and everyone would be treated as emperor. But I think the lesson is that storytelling matters perhaps more than anything else. And if you give people a story that they love, that they feel good participating in, then you can bring them along in a journey of your own defining. And and I, I think that people misunderstand how important storytelling is. You, you know, you, you see people trying to make arguments based on just data alone or emotion alone. And I think that the, the most compelling people in our world are storytellers. And it's the reason why, I, I, you know, I, I think it was Plato um, had argued, actually, that fiction should be regulated by the state because he saw it as such a powerful force that it shouldn't just be in anybody's hands. There's something I think that for everybody, when they're trying to think about how they can be more convincing or get what they want or bring people along, that they have to think about the story that they tell and how that story can shape people's understanding of them in a way in which people want to be a part of that story too. I think that's really true, and I think we've lost track of that with the rise of the internet, because essentially right now, everyone writes, but there are still few writers. So like everyone can Mm. write um, a post on Facebook, an article on LinkedIn or Medium, uh, a caption on Instagram or or Twitter, but, and people sometimes write many articles, but they're not quite writers. They've They've never really developed the skill of writing, even though they're writing a lot. 
And a part of that is, is because they forget what you just said, which is that more important than presenting a persuasive argument with data is the ability to tell lots, lots of stories. Like you have this, whether instinctively or through training or through self-training, like I, I read your book, the, your most recent book, which we're going to talk about build for tomorrow. It's you, ha you have it down. Like you, the whole book is filled with stories. You make a yeah. point and then you tell five stories about that point. That's the way to write. And then the ability to write well comes down to, can you tell a good story? Not, do you have the most amazing ideas? Because the most amazing ideas sometimes are left in the dust. Although if you have both, which your books do, you succeed. Emperor Norton has storytelling. He's also somewhat safe, right? Like he's, he's not presenting a danger to anyone who acknowledges him as emperor. Like if someone <laughs> went around and saying Donald Trump should be emperor, he's going to have people who love him and people who hate him. <laughs> So, yeah. but this guy is safe. Yeah. He's not saying you need to bow down to me or anything. I'm just saying I'm emperor. That's a really great point. <laughs> right. He's, he's not, that's right. Because, um, his, his position of emperor really only enhances people's lives, right? He, he, well, first of all, he had no power. So it's, it's, you know, it, it's easier to love someone when they have no power because, uh, because they're, they pose no threat to you, but also because you get to if if you're the person who wants to buy into the Emperor Norton story, uh, you know, in some way, right? You're not fooling yourself. You don't actually think that he's the emperor, but you want to enjoy that story. And I think the reason you enjoy the story is because it brings something to you. It contributes to you, right? It 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 adds to your life because you love having this character in your world. You love being able to interact with this person, and. Therefore, you want the story to be true. Yeah, and maybe his personality was a little bit larger than life, so everybody liked being around him somehow. Yeah. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think. Like, I've, I, I've been playing around with this idea that for every story I hear and every experience I have, I want three lessons from it. And so mm. the first one's really important, which is always be storytelling. And he created an interesting story that sometimes, by the way, you don't have to be safe. I don't think being safe is the lesson. There's something else there. because. Dangerous also gets picked up by the media. Yep. So, uh, I mean, you see that on social media all the time. Someone's controversial that often you, you'll, you'll create more polarization, but you'll also get lots of views and hits. Yeah. So you're, so we need two more lessons about Emperor Norton. Yeah, we need two more because it's an important story. It's a good example. He probably monetized it. Like you said, he sold bonds. He went from yes. homeless to, to, to making a living because right. of this weird fictional tale he told about himself that people knew it wasn't true, but he became like a mascot. Like, so, and they, and the phrase mascot kind of implies some sort of tribe of some sort, like, like the New York Yankees have a mascot and people love it. If you're in the tribe of fans of New York Yankees. So he became mm -hmm. like, sort of like this weird mascot for San Francisco, that if you came to San Francisco as a journalist, you had to meet the emperor. Oh, you need to meet the emperor. <laughs> so he was like San Francisco's mascot. Who's also a safe and almost humorous figure like this guy. Yeah. Uh, so you need to symbolize something. Yeah. It was all right. So I'll, I'll take a stab at lesson number two, which is that, which is that you must stand for something, uh, right? You, you you cannot you cannot stand for nothing. Um, Emperor Norton. I think another reason people loved him is because he made these declarations. And what would they say? Oh well, so, so some of them were about the the politics of the day. I mean, he was living through the Civil War era, so there was you know there was a lot to say. But also, a lot of them were very localized. Uh, for example, he he one of his declarations banned the the term 
Frisco to refer to San Francisco. He, he thought that that was inappropriate. And then there was another one where he had declared that San Francisco should build a bridge. And then they did. I can't remember if it was the Golden Gate Bridge or another bridge, but it was, and, and one had nothing to do with the other. But he was making stands. He was taking stands on things that people could agree or disagree with, and, and they didn't feel threatened by them, right? I mean, you know, if you ban uh, the term Frisco, it starts a conversation. But I think that it gives people a, a reason to love and support him because he's now telling a story and he's also representing something that, in a way, amplifies something that they believe in. I don't know. What do you think about that as a lesson? Yeah, because so what's happening is, and, and this confirms the mascot theory, is yeah. that he specifically uh, identified himself, even though he's calling himself the emperor of the United States, he specifically identified himself with San Francisco. And he made statements yes. that are almost funny, but people could buy into it. Like, oh, don't cause, you know, don't use the word Frisco. And I'm assuming the reason is because San Francisco is a, the greatest city ever. And we need to refer to it by, we need to show respect for this beautiful city that, that we live in. And so everyone's like, oh, this is funny, but yeah, of course, San Francisco. And so it's like, he's playing that role of mascot. And then I will say the third thing is he probably was very consistent. Like you said, he over mm. time made all these proclamations and it's like, Decades later, he's selling bonds and, <laughs> you know, he's acting like the emperor of San Francisco, essentially, rather than the United States. So he's this mascot theory, which I didn't think of and before, and um, this consistency, which is very important. Like, you can't just write one article because then if he just came into the office and said, oh, I'm the emperor, and then he disappeared again, that would be the end of him. But instead, yeah. they, like, became eager for his proclamations because so many people probably liked the first one. Like, and probably he was a, a, a funny or a good writer. Yeah, I, I think I think that's great. You know, it's funny. I, I had a um, I had another third lesson, which I'll I'll throw to you, which is people love an underdog. So you know, it was mm. it was the reason they love him is because he was not emperor. <laughs> it's uh, it, you know, if somebody if somebody has the has has great power over you, people people don't always um, love you. It's 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 always been interesting to watch that. For example, with our cultural responses to the tech industry you know when the tech industry was was small and scrappy when uh, mark zuckerberg was a college kid who was going to disrupt everything he was on magazine covers being called the boy wonder and now people say he's an evil monster and uh you know a, a part of that is because people love the ascension and they don't really love what happens when you're in a position where you can get blamed for things that have gone wrong and so with Emperor Norton, I mean, it was it was very clear that this was basically a a, a kind of charming semi homeless man who people could people could love. And there might be one more thing too, which yeah. is you, you mentioned in the very first part of the story that he essentially tried to corner the market on rice and went yeah. broke. Right. And this sort of people love the ascension, but people also love the descent. Yes. <laughs> and and I was looking. The other day I, I was looking at, I didn't ask me anything in June, 2013 on, on Reddit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it became very popular. There was like 10,000 comments or something. And I, it showed up for some reason on Google, like someone actually put a comment on it after all these years. And I, I looked at it and a lot of the ask me anything was about, I went broke after making like tens of millions and, you know, fell to zero. You know, I was talking about the rise and fall and rise and fall. Mm -hmm. And people like genuinely, 
I got I got reactions that I don't even get right now. Like I was it was surprised how many people like liked me hmm. on this uh thing. And so people people really do love those types of stories and maybe that story was known about him and that contributed as well. So he was safe in that sense. This wasn't like some powerful figure suddenly declaring himself emperor. This is a guy who was more down and out than anybody could ever be. So they 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 another reason to feel safe liking him. Yeah, that's a that's a great point because that's the part that's relatable. Right? Like the, the the part, you know, you have a lot of things in your life for example that are that are not relatable. You've had degrees of success that that most people have not, but everyone can relate to the stuff that went wrong. And everyone can relate to that feeling of I've got to try to turn this around. And that I think is a reason why people connected so much with and continue to with that part of your journey. And 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 why when you're open about that, I think that you, you know, you you really bring people to you. And I I think that you make a great point about that being a part of his story too, because if people understand that, then they 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 see someone who, although he's pursuing life in a colorful and unique way has gone through something that they either have gone through or could imagine themselves going through and that's the part that people connect with and i mean you and i've talked about this before that oftentimes that you know the, the greatest mistake people make when they're telling their story is they skip over the hard part uh you know they want to tell a story that goes from i set out to do something to i succeeded and they skip the part where everything went wrong but where everything went wrong is the that that's the entry point that's actually where people connect with you Right, that's really important. And again, that's the, the internet has, you know, created these platforms, and this is a good thing, I think, in general. But it's created these platforms where anybody can write. And again, people don't know this basic of storytelling, which is that you there has to be conflict in a story, and it has <laughs> to happen pretty quickly. I think the best thriller writers on the very first page, there's there's a murder or a jailbreak or a kidnapping or whatever, and and you and you you're sucked in right away. Whereas I think people who kind of brag in their in their writing, which is a lot of people, that writing always falls flat, mm -hmm. unless they're already like big and famous and everybody's uh, you know being nice to them for other reasons. Like I see this a lot in, in books written. You know, I interview a lot of billionaires. Some write good yeah. books, but some just don't know how to. Their ghostwriters don't know how to write a book about this guy because some maybe someone's always been successful and they don't know how to get the conflict out there. And some of these books are horrible. But we're talking about a very good book, which is your <laughs> book. And this segues nicely into some aspects of your book. So your book's called Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career. And so let me, the first thing I'm curious about, and it, it kind of just occurred to me right before we got on the Zoom, a lot of times I write a book, not because I'm an expert in something, because I'm solving, I'm trying to solve my own problems. So let's say I, I wrote a book, for instance, called The Power of No. And I wrote it because I couldn't say no to people. <laughs> and so I, through my own exploration of how people say no and how I started to learn to say no, I was able to write this book. So I'm just curious, did this book solve, was it just an interesting thing for you, like Emperor Norton, or did this book solve some problem that was really causing you great anxiety? So it's a great question. This book, the writing of this book didn't solve that problem, but the learning of everything that's in the book did solve the problem. Um, because I, I wrote this book after years of talking to people about this very subject and spending time with people who think in just a completely different way than I do. 
or did, I suppose, because I, I really feel like I've calibrated my brain differently as a result of spending so much time with entrepreneurs. And it, it enabled me to think differently about my own work and how to solve problems. I, I mean, I, so, you know, the book is, the book is really centered around this question of how the most successful people adapt. Because what I found is that like, like the ability to navigate change, the ability to see opportunity in, in chaos, uh, is the thing that drives people's success. And so I want to understand how they, how they do that. But I would say there was a little bit more there because yeah. for instance, right in the center of the book, like literally dead center in the book is the story of Blockbuster. Yes. And by the way, I do appreciate one thing in the book is that it's, I, it deserves more thinking. I have to think about it, but you take these one line stories like, oh, Blockbuster fell apart because it didn't appreciate the future and Netflix killed it. You yeah. take these, these sort of stories that are much more complex, get filtered down so that, that it's almost like a Darwinism of stories. So that the one line that describes the situation completely is the one that's most appealing to people. So people love that one line story, mm -hmm. but you say it's much more complicated, much more nuanced. I did not know that. So I really appreciate that from the book. And you described it for, for other stories, including Ford Motor Company. But Blockbuster is interesting because you're the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And one kind of prevailing theme in society right now is that all print media is, is dead and yeah. or is on its way to being dead. And so I'm wondering if an anxiety for you was, look, everybody keeps telling me. I go to Thanksgiving dinner and even my aunts and uncles are telling mm -hmm. me, well, what are you doing in a, a magazine? And print media is dead. <laughs> and, and so probably like as you're confronted with the blockbuster problem every single day, and maybe that created anxiety for you that you wanted to move past. So yeah, that's uh, that's a great reading, and it's true that 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 question of what am I still doing at a print magazine, which is such an old thing at a time in which there's so much disruption, and also I'm a guy who now talks about and champions exactly that. How, how do I how does that compute? So let me let me um, let me go through a few answers to that. Number one, know that I come from a place of a fear of change. Like I, 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 I was a, I was the kid who, who would always say that the band's first album was the best and that everything after was terrible. Right. Like I, I was, um, I, I literally, uh, I literally slept with my childhood blanket through college and my mom kept buying me. This is a slightly embarrassing story. But I, my mom kept buying, like she kept, she bought a nicer blanket and she kept putting it on my bed and I kept putting it away and taking this like childhood blanket out. And the, and the thing is, I think that what I, what I was doing was I was trying to hold on to things that were comfortable because I didn't know what it meant to redefine myself, to try something new. It felt like shedding an, an identity and then starting from scratch and th that's scary. And, um, and I, I see that in other people that they they equate change with loss. They see something new and they immediately say, this is the thing that I'm going to lose rather than saying, this is something that I can gain. And you mentioned this is an evolutionary phenomenon that people fear change is an evolutionary response. Because I guess if you, if you know exactly where all the threatening animals and tribes are in a five mile radius of where your tribe is located, if suddenly your tribe has to move, it's scary because you have to relearn everything. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Or and, you could and, die. 
And th- and this is why also you, you know you find I mean, psychological research for decades has confirmed what we call loss aversion theory, which is that we are always focused more on avoiding loss than we are on what we gain. And even even if we have an experience in which we gain something, we we will tend to focus on what we might not have gained as much of. I. I I, I bought two Bitcoin when they were four thousand dollars each, and uh, and then I sold those Bitcoin when they were sixteen thousand uh, dollars, which meant that I made money, but I felt bad about it, and I still do because I could have made so much more money, right? I, I was so focused on the thing that I had lost. This is you're right. This is this is baked right into us. So so when you, one of the things that we need to do when we're trying to navigate these experiences is we need to establish a purpose for ourselves and a purpose for our actions such that we understand where we're going and 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 how to plot a path forward even as the things around us feel chaotic so with the uh, the you bring up the print magazine thing is a really is a really good one because um I, i'll tell you how i've thought through that i i get asked that question a fair amount and um and so i was really pushing myself to evaluate what am i doing and am i doing something smart and I, I came to this question that I started asking about the print magazine, and I started asking about literally everything that I do, and I found that asking it was incredibly clarifying. So I'll tell you the question. It's a really simple one. What is it for? I literally devote a whole page to this in the book. Like I just write, what is it for on a page so that you can tear it out and slap it on a wall because it's such an important question. And people often don't ask that of themselves. Yeah. So if I were to ask, what is content for? Well, decades ago, when print media reigned, you would say that content is for monetization. It's simple, two ways to make money off of it. You can run ads against it, or you can sell subscriptions to it. Either way, you make money. But now we're in a pretty disrupted environment. There's a lot of people making amazing you know, content. I don't really love the word content because it makes makes ideas feel like widgets, but you know, for lack of anything else, they'll say content. Um, and yeah, you know, it's free. Like this podcast is free. And so that really disrupts the model that content had before. So it's now worth asking again, because the question will the question stays the same, but the answer will always change. What is content for? Now, I think I have an answer to that, which is content is for relationships. Because people trust you when you produce good content. When you create something that they find valuable, they transfer that appreciation to you. And then you can build off of that. You can build products and services, for example, that they will buy from you because they trust you because of the content. That's so, very true. So that's the as, reason. As I've personally yeah. experienced over and over again. Yeah, that's right. I mean, anybody who produces things that go out into the world, even if those things themselves don't have a price tag on them, they will discover that they build these relationships and those relationships are incredibly valuable. So that is now the answer to that question. So why do we make a print magazine? I mean, look, the dollars and cents of it are, is that is that Entrepreneur Magazine, the print magazine, does make money. It doesn't make the kind of money that I'm sure it made decades ago. It's now a part of a larger you know, suite of products that Entrepreneur Media produces. But its primary purpose, I think, isn't the money that it makes. It is the relationship that it builds because it's out there in the world. It's on newsstands. People pick it up. They establish a relationship with the brand. I see a benefit to that because they establish relationships with me. And as long as that continues to make sense, there's a reason to do this. Now, as you ask that question, what is it for of everything that you do, you will start to gain clarity 
about what things are worth doing and what aren't and how to think about them and build off of them. Because if we at Entrepreneur can recognize, and, and this is a conversation we have all the time, that content builds relationships and that the relationships are monetizable, well, that leads to new ideas, to new products and services that we can produce, new ways to engage people to make money that way. And it, and it weans us off of an increasingly challenging you know, advertising environment that is, is, is not where we want to put all of our chips. Yeah. And, and look, I, just to be clear, also, you have a thriving website. It's, you know, in real time updated, like you got the stock market and stuff like that. Yeah. What other stuff do you do? Do you, do you sell, have you gotten into uh, subscription letters, for instance? Uh, at Entrepreneur Media? Yeah. So Entrepreneur Media, we, a heavy growth space for us is the franchise world because there's a legacy there. Entrepreneur Media came out of the franchise world and, and it's still a big part of our coverage. And there's a lot of opportunity there offering consulting services, both for franchisees looking for, or, you know, potential franchisees looking for what brand they should uh, join to, uh, you know, franchisors trying to find franchisees. Um, so we're, we're exploring a lot in that space with products and services. We've gotten into consulting a bit, you know, sort of d direct consulting services. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot, in the pipeline that I can't uh, share yet. I feel like you would make a lot of money selling. Like I see your franchise stuff. I, uh, yeah. I, I think I feel like you would get a lot of money uh, becoming almost like a marketplace for digital information about franchising. So like yeah. whether it's a course or mm -hmm. get notified of you know local but running existing franchises that are now available because those are often very lucrative to acquire. Yeah, uh, it seems like people would pay. People who are in the franchise business would pay a good number. For information like that, yeah, and that, and we're finding that, and and we're we're leaning really heavily into it, and you know, and again, that all comes out of to go back to the thing, it all comes out of that question: what is it for? Because if you understand that the content that we produce about franchising builds a a trust in the franchise community with us, then it establishes us as an authority in that space, and then we can find endless ways in which to serve that community, and and, and that that's the power here, right? I I, I think that. One of the things we need to do is 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 recognize that everything that we do is going to change. And so what we need to do is build in systems so that we're aware of it and we're able to identify the new opportunities there. Because one of the great things in you know in business in particular is that disruption just creates opportunity. Right? Needs never go away. It's not like people don't stop needing things. They don't stop needing solutions. And so when there is a disruption, the pandemic proved this perfectly, when there's a disruption, people have new needs. And some of the legacy providers of those needs, the incumbents who people used to turn to, are going to be disrupted themselves. They're not going to be able to serve people as well. And that means that you have the opportunity to recognize how to be of value to people and step up and provide it. And, and that's why the more time that I spend with entrepreneurs, the more I see that they see these moments of disruption as an opportunity, as a time to say, all right, let's step back, reevaluate. What do we have? What is our core value that does not change, even in changeable times? And then what do people need now? And the more you can think through that in just a clear, coherent, non-panicky way, the more you can see what your competitive advantage actually is.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash 
James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, it's so interesting because there's obviously there's lots of different types of businesses. So, you know, you take a company like Uber, they solved a major problem, particularly in cities or, or actually even not cities where it's hard to get a cab sometimes. And here, right from my phone, I can get like a deluxe car, pick me up in the rain when there's no cabs and take me home. Or I can get a ride to the airport at four in the morning if I live in some you know, rural area. Cause I could schedule an Uber the night before. It's a major problem. It like changed life for everybody. Mm-hmm. But then there's like companies that solve basic problems. Like a laundromat solves a basic problem, but not necessarily in a, you don't have to be unique. Sometimes you have to be the only one, maybe you're unique in a location. You're the only laundromat on a block in the city and yeah. you know, it solves that problem. Uh, and then, so, so there's kind of like a range of problems. And, and like your entrepreneur magazine, a magazine for entrepreneurs doesn't necessarily solve a problem that, because there's other locations, not as important because of the internet. And there are many resources and websites out there for, uh, entrepreneurs. So you have to distinguish yourself a with content. As you mentioned earlier, content is what helps you, what helps entrepreneur magazine build a direct relationship with its customers, a loyal customer base and loyal reader base. But also you mentioned you came out of the franchising business. You were a magazine originally about franchising. That's what people thought of as entrepreneurship is if you owned your own McDonald's. And uh, that probably did solve a problem because information was relatively rare 30 years ago, however old Entrepreneur Magazine is. And Mm -hmm. you solved the problem in that. Yeah, yeah. So you, you... 30 is like the new 40. Like if, I'm sure it was 40 <laughs> years ago because I remember seeing it in the in the 80s. But, uh, you know, 30 years ago is like my adult life. So anything that was 40 years ago has become 30 years of my life. Yeah. So, uh, but you solved a real problem for people, which is like, how can I find out more about this franchising stuff? People are getting rich from it. So that was the problem Entrepreneur Magazine started off solving. Then you had to adapt and become this content machine about entrepreneurship. And then you added that further by making a website where probably most of your content now is viewed via the website. Right. So this is, and this is a great setup because I want to make sure that, you know, people appreciate that the things that we're talking about for business can apply to the way that you think about yourself as an individual too. This is what I appreciated most about the book. First off, I looked back at my own life and I saw this is the exact format how I've solved problems in my own life over the decades. And I never put it in as concise a way as you did in the first chapter where you sketch out your, your four yeah. things. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, I know. All things for me. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to say that because I think that the way that you set up and the way that you were just talking about the evolution of, of a company like Entrepreneur Media tracks really well, I think, with the way that an individual can think about what their own value is. Because... Because I think that one of the things that we need to do as individuals or as companies when we're going through times of change is we need to be sure that we're defining what is so deep in our core. What is the mission that we have such that it is unchangeable in times of change, right? We have to define this thing about ourselves that 
that is separate from the product or the service that we do. We have a problem as individuals, which is that we identify too closely with the output of our work. We say, I'm a whatever, right? I'm a project manager. I'm a newspaper reporter. I'm a something, which is fine until your job changes, you, you, you lose your job, and now you don't have an identity anymore because you've spent so long identifying with the output of your work. So I realized that when I was talking to entrepreneurs who were going through major changes, they had done this thing. They may not have even been aware that they had done it, but I just heard it often enough where they would say to me a description of what they do that is divorced from the product that they have, like from the way that they do it. So, so I, you know, I talked to the CEO of a, of a, a company called um, Foodsters that makes baking mixes, and they were going through a big change and it was challenging in any way. But he said, you know, our mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. And, and I thought, well, that is brilliant, right? Because that's not tied to any one kind of product. Bring joy to people with upgraded, upgraded sweet bake. It doesn't matter what you make. You make baking mixes one day, and maybe if, if the if sales of baking mixes plummet, you, you pivot into something else because that's not your thing. You're not a baking mix company. You bring joy to people. And everybody can have some version of that for themselves. You should come up with like a sentence, a single sentence for yourself that defines your mission that is separate from the actual thing that you do that could be changed. So for me, for example, I say that I tell stories in my own voice, right? I'm not a magazine editor. I'm not a book author. I'm not a podcast. I mean, I do all these things. But what is my mission? I tell stories in my own voice. The reason for that is because if I get off the this call with you and I check my email and it turns out that Entrepreneur Magazine has decided to kick me to the curb, you know, that'll suck. But it doesn't take my core mission away because I have something that does not change even in times of change. And that's very similar to what you were describing with the company a few minutes ago where you were you were describing how it it evolved to meet people's new needs because ultimately it wasn't a company that, you know, produced a magazine or it wasn't a company that helped people with franchising or what you know or whatever whatever it is now. It was always a company that if if you distill it down, you could you could say, and I haven't really thought about this for entrepreneur media, but off the top of my head I would say it, you know, this is a brand that helps people build opportunity, right? And if you define it that way, well, then how you do it is agnostic. You do it in every possible way that you can. And it doesn't really matter if the marketplace shifts because people will always need someone who can help them build opportunity. That's really true. And, you know, and for you, the way you described your own, what is it for? I almost think I don't think that is how you describe yourself. And I far be it for me to tell you how you describe yourself. But <laughs> in the book, you describe yourself as someone who helps people. You don't, you say, I, I don't identify as a magazine yep. publisher or editor, but I am someone who helps people adapt. And, and I think what you described as telling stories in your own voice, that's your method of doing it, which mm. is a very successful method. Mm. But you really do help people solve a problem like you're doing in this book, like you've done in other books is I, I think even like in your other podcasts and other stories, you you tell either stories of people who have gone through significant changes or, you know, aka adaptations in their lives, yeah. whether it's like, a, a, you know, because you've to told all sorts of stories in different podcasts and stuff, or you help people deal with um, financial changes as they go through different phases of their life. Like you've mm -hmm. had, you know, podcasts with Nicole that we've talked about yeah. where it's more of like financial guidance 
And uh, uh, I actually don't even know. Are you still doing that podcast? I, I love talking about it. Yeah, no, thanks. I, it's on hiatus right now, but we we have plans to bring it back once um what I once I get through the book launch and all the craziness. I'm sure. like at max capacity. But yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And that's and that's because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out here was my journey to that very specific thing. Like why why am I talking to you about adaptability? Why did I write write a book about this? You know, it really stems from this observation that I had at the very beginning of my time at Entrepreneur Magazine, um, which was, so, so this weird thing happened where I, I became editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur and I started getting invited to speak at events and I started getting invited to be interviewed on podcasts. And that was not stuff that I was doing before because prior to that, I was I was just a magazine editor, right? I, I, I've worked at all sorts of magazines. And you know, as a magazine editor, you, you're just one of many. And then suddenly I was being treated as different. And people started asking me this question wherever I went, which was, what are the qualities of a successful entrepreneur? And I, I, was, I was wondering, why am I getting the same question over and over again? It's weird. This is not a coordinated effort here. Like, why are people asking me the same question? And then I realized it's because if you listen closely to the questions that people ask you, you discover that what they're really doing is telling you what they think your value is to them. And if you understand mm. what people think your value is, if you understand what people think you know you, you are an authority on, then you're halfway to solving problems for them because you know what they're going to trust you to provide. And so I, I felt like, well, okay, well, why are they asking me that? And I, I realized the answer is because they see me as a pattern matcher. I, I, I get to talk to lots of people because of my role. I get to talk to incredibly successful people. And therefore, I can see patterns among them. So that's why they assume that I have this answer. And so I thought, well, I better have this answer. Because <laughs> if, I, if I can have this answer, then I can really mean something to them more than just a guy who makes a magazine. And that sent me on this quest to find the answer to that. And I, I just, I spent a lot of time talking to people and, and kind of trying to track people's journeys and understand the thing that seemed to drive success. And I, I, I zeroed in on this answer, which was that the most successful people are adaptable. And then I felt like, well, if I, if I can understand the answer to how they do it, then I have something that I can offer other people. And, and that's what I started to build, you know, what you might call like my personal brand around. And it, it, again, it all came out of listening to questions that people ask me because it's so, so powerful. And then you did very well what I call the spoken wheel technique. So the, the wheel is, you know, how am I going to help people adapt better? And then the spokes, this is what really, you know, allows you to, you know, build something that can move literally mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, create your own personal brand. So you're not just tied down to one job or one possibility or one opportunity. Right. Like you, you started multiple podcasts, you've written multiple books, you, you speak to audiences, you do consulting. Um, you're a go-to person for people now to really ask this question. How can I get, I was even thinking of advice I would ask you. <laughs> it's funny because I figured, oh, I'm not going to do that on the podcast, but it, it did run through my head. Like, oh, Love to be able to talk to Jason at some point about X, Y, and Z. Happy because anytime. you have created, yeah, and 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 I appreciate that, and you and you have created this expertise because not everyone gets a chance to talk to, you know, the most amazing entrepreneurs in the world, and and you're very fortunate. Not only have you been able to talk to these people, but then to to 
translate it to something usable to everyone, including me. Like, and I just want to read the these four stages of adaptation that you write about throughout the book, but you, in the introduction, you, you mentioned them specifically. Yeah. You call them panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. And I would say every major change in my life had to do with, did start with panic. Like, <laughs> and it was, and I didn't realize that until I read it in your book. Like, of course there were times when things were going bad for me when, um, I panicked quite correctly and I changed my life. But there were times when I could have easily been complacent, but instead I panicked about being complacent. And like I, like I was, yeah. when I, I went to grad school for computer science at Carnegie Mellon, so I lived in Pittsburgh. And when I was thrown out of graduate school, I stayed there because all my friends were there and I got an easy programming job and whatever. But then I realized, and then about two years later, I panicked. I realized, oh, all of my friends are going to get PhDs and leave and be very successful and leave me. And I'm not going to know anybody. I'm just going to be an older and older guy who got thrown out of grad school and never moved on. Yeah. So I panicked and then started to, uh, ultimately that led to me taking a job at HBO and moving to New York. So I adapted. Then there was a new normal, which was me at HBO. And then, you know, of course I wouldn't go back, but then of course I, I started panicking over the next thing, which is you know, on and on. I, I could say this about yeah, every yeah, stage yeah. of my life, uh, but but it, your formula here worked. And I would say it, the panic now I could be uh, rather than something that is comes to me, meaning oh I lost everything, so now I'm panicking. You could kind of self create the panic if you want that next phase in your life. You you should panic about complacency every now and then, not not every day, but every now and then. Yeah, I I love that. Uh, I I love how you were how you saw yourself in that and that that's my goal here and I I so I've learned to develop ideas out loud and that's because I find that they're they become most refined if I if I kind of if I speak. A, if I speak out a thing that I'm thinking about over and over again with lots of different people, right? So then, then what I get is the benefit of their responses and either their validation or them saying, you know, that isn't quite right. And so as I came to that realization about the four phases of change, panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back, what I, what I did is I just started telling that story to a lot of people. Uh, and I might've even had different language for it for a while. And somebody would say, you know, it's funny, you, you describe it that way, but I actually think I describe it this way. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And um, and so I, I eventually got to a place with it after talking about it enough where now I, I felt comfortable putting it down on page knowing that people like you would read it and say, ah, that that rings true to me. Um, it's a it's a great validation of it. And and also, I, you know, I want to say, uh, you, you, you describing that just made me think, of something that you had said much earlier in our conversation, I wanted to pick back up on, which was which was about the storytelling um, in in the book. Because I want to share a, a, just a, something that I've learned about storytelling that I think can help others. Um, because so, number one, you'll notice that as I, I I wanted to find a way to help orient people in in change, and that thing that you just told there, panic adaptation, new normal wouldn't go back, is a story, right? It is a story that I that I came up with to. To it, I mean, it is it is at once I think uh, true, but it's also I'm telling it in a way in which it has a kind of narrative arc to it, and so people can find themselves in it, and it's a journey that they can go through. And I have found that 
if I want to communicate an idea to people and I want to make people connect with that idea, that um, I need to do a few things. I need to have a, a big idea with a name, which in this case is is the four phases of change, but in the book there is like a, a ton of others. And then after that, I need to show how it applies to somebody else, right? Tell the story of somebody else. And then as often as possible, I also then tell the story of myself learning about how to handle this or navigate this or experience this or whatever. And the reason I do that is because I want to be the reader. Like I, I want to be able to step in and kind of start from the reader's point of view, which is to say, I'm a person learning this myself. Now, I'm a few steps ahead of it with then you because I'm already familiar with it and I've already thought about it. And so here's what I've done and here's what I've experienced. I want to give you access to my thoughts. So big idea with a name plus story of somebody else doing it plus story of me doing it. I found that when I do that, people get it. They like they get yes. the idea and and they they can see themselves in it and they remember it. So wait, let, let's. What are those three types of stories again? Story of someone else doing it. Story of you doing it. Yeah, and then big idea with a name. And and I think that's key. Like, it's funny. I give advice to people writing books, and I write lots of articles about writing. And I always say for each, exactly how you, how you put it. So I'll, I'm giving you full credit, but I I often tell people this, yeah. which is for every idea, for every chapter title, you need to have a story from history that really has impressed you and a story from your own life, at least. You mm -hmm. need those two things <laughs> in every chapter. You do that very well. Like You weave your own story throughout this book. But I, I, I want to kind of get to the story that I kind of, the first example we, we spoke about. Yeah. What is the real story of Blockbuster? <laughs> right, that's right, you did. You did mention that a while ago. Um, because so by the way, until yeah. I read your book, I always thought, oh, Blockbuster, a bunch of losers. They they let right. Netflix just walk all over them. So did I. I mean, so did I, which is why I which I which is why I, I went out to try to understand it. And uh, and so before I tell you that, let me let me tell you the like the important thing to know like what this story represents. Well, this story represents a whole bunch of things. But so number one, you know, you had you had pointed out that one of the things I do is I find these stories that people think that they know in a simple way, and then I unpack them. And the reason that I do that is because I believe that we make a mistake when we're trying to understand problems, which is that we, we try to simplify them. We simplify them into something that feels familiar, that feels easy to understand, that just feels right. And when we do that, we often lose the important complexity that actually enables us to understand the problem and find a solution. Or like I feel like when you simplify a problem, you inhibit your ability to come up with a meaningful solution. I mean, if you want an example, just look to Washington. But the, but it's also in, it happens in business all the time, and I think that it also happens in our own personal lives. Where if we we want to we want to try to understand something that's vexing us, and we we come up with some very simple explanation for why somebody else sucks or something, and that's never going to get us to an actual solution because problems are complicated, and solutions require actually addressing all the complications of that problem. So that's why that's why I like to do this because. Um, because I find that the more that I, the more that 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 I can dig in and understand how complex something is that we thought was simple, the more I feel like we can reveal some real understanding about it. So, okay, let, let's talk about blockbuster. Um, you know, the story that people know is is a very simple one, right? Which is just like Blockbuster didn't see it coming. Like they just they were so focused on their own business that they they um, and they believed in it so much that they could not possibly have imagined Netflix and Netflix 
um, doing direct uh, mailing of DVDs and then pivoting into streaming. And uh, and so they were a bunch of idiots and they fell apart. And you know, and that's a, that's a very satisfying story for us to tell because, of course, if something failed because those people were a bunch of idiots, well, you know, oh, well, we're not a bunch of idiots, right? And so, you know, we won't have that same problem. But no, 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 it's, it's, this is not, it's not the issue. So, okay, the, the moment that, uh, that really changed my understanding of this came when I found this really fascinating piece in, uh, in uh, Harvard Business Review that was written by uh, John, um, Ant- I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I think it's Antioco, who was the CEO from 97 oh, yeah. to 2007 of Blockbuster. And uh, this was not a dumb guy. Uh, he was the CEO of Circle K, he took the company out of bankruptcy, he was the CEO of Taco Bell and turned it into the cultural giant that we know. Uh, you know, very successful guy, saw a lot of opportunity in Blockbuster and, and he joined there and he saw this shift to digital coming and he felt that blockbuster needed to invest heavily in new ways to reach people with enter- with, with entertainment but he did not have the power to do that uh and, oh and by the way I should say that before blockbuster fell apart um it was actually quite successful under his under his watch it it, it, it under under his Rained, it had nearly doubled revenues to six billion dollars. So, um, so, but as he started to pivot into digital, uh, Viacom, which owned eighty percent of the company, was was not interested in that. Uh, and uh, most of the uh, the companies, are, are, you know, at least a, a significant portion of the company's shares, I, I, I don't know the exact figures, uh, fell into the hands of Carl Icahn, famous activist investor, who. Um, who was not at all interested in blockbuster pivoting to digital and instead was looking for ways to make fast money on this brand. And so he kind of took over the board. They started pushing ideas like putting greeting cards in stores, carrying adult movies. Could you imagine if that was there was like an adult section of Blockbuster? Um, they wanted to add a deal with Barnes and Noble, which you know, would, wouldn't have played out very well. And ultimately, the whole thing just just collapsed. Um, and the takeaway that I have is, if you, you, it's not fair to say Blockbuster didn't see it coming. Rather, what happened is that Blockbuster, or at least the CEO of Blockbuster at the time, and probably a lot of people who worked with him, did see it coming. They did see the change coming, and they were unable to do anything about it. Because in this case, it was a whole complicated, you know, series of events with a lot of uh, stakeholders. But I think that you could zoom out and say, you know, a big problem that companies and individuals have is that they have structured themselves in a way in which they simply cannot react to change. Um, they, they just they just can't do it because they haven't left open the door for new ideas. They haven't, if you're an individual, because they haven't spent time building new skill sets and expanding their network and thinking about what else they could, you know, what else they could do. I remember, I remember talking years ago to a uh, a guy who was like a movie reviewer for a local newspaper, remember, like back when local newspapers all had their own movie reviewers, and, and, uh, and it was a very high prestige thing to be the movie it, reviewer for a newspaper. It really was. It really was. It took a lot of work to be good at it. Yes, un- until until you know budget cuts uh, meant that people started to say, "Wait a second! Like every the, mo- the, the 
the movie showing in Tulsa is the same movie showing in Boston. So why do we need a local person to do this? And those jobs got cut. And because that person had never spent any time in their career developing any other kind of writing skill set, they had literally no idea what to do. And similarly, companies often structure themselves in these ways in which they, they prioritize efficiency over absolutely everything else. So that the only thing that everybody top to bottom is incentivized to do is to be more efficient doing the thing that they're already doing, which means that the company is completely blindsided when something new comes along and consumers have new needs. So what we the, like the lesson of Blockbuster is is really that number one, we we cannot just say, oh, bad things happen to dumb people because bad things can happen to us too. And that number two, we need to make sure that our systems, our entire our, our structure, the way that we operate as an individual or an organization is always taking into account that something is going to change. Because the more that we digest that and just make it part of our functioning reality, the more we will prepare for it and then have options later. By the way, I had totally forgotten that Viacom was a, a big owner, and I totally had forgotten that Carl Icahn was an activist investor. And by the way, Carl Icahn's an extremely smart, ingenious guy. He's, yeah. This is how he makes money, is taking over companies like this and unlocking you know, potential assets inside the company. So he was, but he does it in a very traditional way, as you point out, and he didn't think of being like the ne the first Netflix. Right. And to be fair to Carl Icahn, for, to the degree that anybody needs to be fair to him, this is the CEO's telling of this story in Harvard Business Review. It's possible that Carl has a different telling. But I believe that story, though. It, it, it rings true. Like, I've, I've, I had forgotten these things, but I I'm, it's sorry, I'm starting to remember these things as you I read it and as you tell it. But... He was also, Carl Icahn was also panicking and going through your process. So he mm -hmm. was probably a shareholder of Blockbuster. And then he was panicked because the stock had probably begun falling in anticipation of, you know, the future. And yeah. he probably bought up a controlling interest so he could make the changes he felt needed so he could make a lot of money. And his way of adapting was to kind of add more services under the existing umbrella and brand of Blockbuster rather than looking towards taking the, the leap and investment into technology. Like you said, he was more short-term thinking, you know, so I wonder how you can check yourself before you wreck yourself, <laughs> so to speak. No, I had to put that in, yeah. but I wonder how you could check yourself so that your ad method of adaptation kind of takes into account risk. Yeah. It's a great the question. Risk you could be wrong. I mean, so, so I, one of the first things that you have to do is, is I think that you have to just take very seriously that disruption will come and it will come possibly in ways that you, you didn't predict. And therefore, you need, if you're running a company, you need people who who take that seriously, who have power, uh, which a lot oftentimes people don't. You know, I mean there, there's there is I, this is is this is like the craziest thing to me is that is that large companies will create innovation departments. Uh, right? Uh, like that that doesn't make any sense to me to create a specific department siloed off of everything else where the innovation is supposed to occur. And then oftentimes, because the innovation is seen like, oh, well, these are the people who are going to think about the future, but they're not going to think about our core business. They're often not taken that seriously when they, you know, when they identify things or have, have, you know, bring new needs to the company. So we, you have to, you have to really integrate, uh, into, into the decision-making structure at your company, um, people who are looking ahead at changes and who are able to recognize and take action on what the rest of the company might be missing. Now, um, how do you do that? Well, 
I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that is worth doing, um, which is to uh, seriously consider the possibility that you don't know your consumer as well as you think that you do. Um, I, I had a, I had this re- like revelatory conversation with a friend of mine. And this was after I wrote the book, so it's not it's not in the book. Although she actually appears in the book, but anyway, um, so her name is Rochelle Devoe, and she does consumer insights research, and uh, and so she, that means that companies hire her to interview their customers and to get to understand what people need, what they like, what they don't like, better than the company already knows, so that they can then adapt to it. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do people respond honestly to um, surveys like that, or do they even know what they like and don't like? I mean, it seems like data is a better approach than surveys. Data is important. This is not a replacement for data, and I think that data can tell you a lot. But what this is not, this is not surveys in the like fill out a form sense. This is surveys in the get people on the phone sense, and then have somebody who's trained to really deeply engage with your with your consumer to have like a, a conversation with them about their needs and and their feelings and. Um, and uh, you got to, you know, like it's slow work. It's often expensive because you got to give somebody a $100 gift card or whatever to get them on the phone for a while. But yeah, I mean, I don't think one should be exclusive to the other. But I'll just tell you the this, this story that really kind of cracked this open for me. So Rochelle was telling me about how, you know, one of the things she struggles with is, is convincing CEOs that they don't know their audience as well as they think they do. And and I said, well, g- g- give me an example of, of, of like how there could be that breakdown and then how a company could be transformed as a result. And she said, okay, so there's a, there's a sock company called Vim and Vigor that had hired Rochelle. And the company had been started by an athlete. And this, this, this uh, woman who founded it, she needed compression socks for her own athletics. And she had seen a need in her athletic peers. And so she created this company for compression socks for athletes and, you know, assumed that athletes were their market and and the company grew pretty steadily for a while and then growth just plateaued. They could not figure out what was going on. And so they brought Rochelle in. So Rochelle has this process by which she identifies a company's best customers by, by all sorts of metrics, right? Like who's buying the most, who's the most engaged, who's leaving great reviews because you want to understand who these people are and what they want. And then she starts to get them on the phone and she discovers that the company's best customers were not athletes. They were people who work all day on their feet, like nurses. And those were the people who were buying the compression socks. So Vim and Vigor was reaching its best customers really despite itself because it was not marketing to them at all. It was marketing to a completely different set of people. And once they knew that, they were able to adjust the product line and how they speak to their consumer. And in so doing, they unlocked all this tremendous growth. And that right there, I think, is, is it's a wonderful example of how 
you need to, one, be open to the possibility that the thing that you're doing isn't quite perfect and that there, there's going to need to be major change as part of the journey. Um, and then number two is take seriously what you learn, right? I mean, part of the problem, I guess, at Blockbuster was that they had surely done some sophisticated analysis of where the entertainment industry was going, you know, enough that John, the CEO, wanted to start investing in digital, but the company didn't take it seriously and they 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 weren't willing to make that investment. Vim and Vigor, you know, I mean, it's easier to turn a small ship around than a large ship, but Vim and Vigor was. And as a result, the company's growth exploded. And I think that we can do this as individuals too by constantly asking ourselves questions about what are we seeing around us that's changing and what what do we need in order to grow? You know, there, there are three questions that I have found to be incredibly helpful in my own journey uh, uh, as, I, as I see that some kind of change needs to take place. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you them. And they are, number one, what do I have? Number two, what do I need? And number three, what's available? Like, what do I have? What, 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 do I, what, what is my current status? What is within my reach? Um, when I was a small town newspaper reporter and I wanted to start do, doing bigger things and I didn't have any connections and I didn't have uh, uh, any experience. I, you know, I, I, what do I have? What I have is a job at a tiny newspaper uh, and, and nobody's reading my work here. What do I need? Well, I guess if I'm being realistic about it, what I need is to learn. I need to learn how to write better. I need to learn from better editors that I don't have access to um, because they're not working alongside me at this paper. And, um, and I need uh, to ultimately be able to prove to larger publications that I can work at their level, but they're not going to hire me to do that. What's available? That, that, that we have to take that question very seriously. What's available? Not like in a hypothetical sense, not in a fantasy sense. What is truly available? What can I reach my hand out and grab right now today? And in my case, the answer was large publications. The New York Times is not hiring me. Like when I'm a tiny little newspaper, you know, a community newspaper reporter, they're not going to hire me. Washington Post is not going to hire me. But I can pitch an individual article as a freelancer and maybe they'll consider the merits of a single story of mine and take a risk on me and let me write a single story. And if I can get that, I can prove my value and I can also gain access to a great editor who's going to work with me. So that's what I did. I quit that job and I sat in my bedroom for nine months. What, what year was this? Oh, this was 2003. It's so funny because that's when I did a similar approach mm. and, and began my professional writing career basically happened it started in january 2003 huh oh that's so funny we were starting and i we, started we, i started pitching articles everywhere one took a chance and then i grew from there that's exactly what happened with me it's exactly what happened with me and i and i was sitting there in this bedroom i mean you know the stakes were low i was young i was living in a dumpy apartment with a bunch of friends my rent was 500 dollars a month we lived next to a graveyard but um but i i, I <laughs> took that risk. little uh uh Side note. I know. Good <laughs> storytelling. Uh, so, um, you know, and, and, you know, actually, funny, cra crazy thing. I had mentioned, I had mentioned on another podcast the, the graveyard detail, and uh, and then I, uh, so it was in, it was in Holden, Massachusetts, which is another important detail for this. And then I, I, I got a DM from a guy who was like, I grew up in Holden, Massachusetts, and I learned how to drive in a graveyard. And uh, I wonder if it was the same graveyard. So I went onto Google Maps and like found where I lived and sent him the name of the graveyard, which was St. Mary Graveyard. And sure enough, that was where he learned to drive. So possibly I was sitting there uh, looking out the window as this guy was learning how to drive. I don't know. But that's, small that's world. Um, 
and, and that that's what did it. You know, that's what did it. And so again, I'm just I'm just going to repeat those those questions. What do I have? What do I need? What's available? If you take those questions very seriously, a path will open up in front of you. Yeah. So let's let's do that exercise right now with you. Yeah. So what do you have right now? You're you're publisher of Entrepreneur Magazine. You've built out your personal brand with podcasts. You have books, consulting, speaking engagements. What do you need right now? You'd actually would like a broader platform. You want to have a a, a great best selling book and and more people wanting you to consult or speak or whatever. Yeah, that's correct. So I would say that I am in the middle at this very moment as we talk uh, of exploring the the power of one of the what's available to me. So, I mean, you know, what's my goal right now? Uh, you know, I mean, I'll be I'll be candid. I um, I mean, I love my role at Entrepreneur. I am not. I'm not in any rush to leave it. I'll be, you know, like just stress that. But one of the things that I'm very aware of, because I uh, spend all my time with with entrepreneurs who think about ownership uh, of things, is that uh, you know I don't own the most prominent part of myself because I don't own Entrepreneur Magazine, but I am mostly associated as the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. So that is that is great for me in one way because um, you know somebody else spent decades building this brand, and then I get the. The, the halo effect of it. And I get to have this prominent title and people take me very seriously as a result. But what I don't love is that I don't have control of it because it's not mine. I'm renting it. And, uh, and you know, I hope to rent it for a lot longer, but I also want to be mindful that now is also an opportunity to build something that I do own. And that to me is, well, let's establish me as a, as a, as a you know, as a as a person, as an authority that people recognize as a standalone entity, um, and then I can build on top of that with additional media products and you know and other opportunities. So I spent a long time. So that's so that so what do I have? What I have is a is a is a prominent position, but that has a downside. Uh, what do I need? I need to create. Uh, ownership, which is to say that I need to build myself up as a as a as a you know as a kind of standalone entity in the world. Again, I'll just stress again, not not like I'm looking to leave Entrepreneur immediately or anytime soon, but because um, I think these things Entrepreneur Magazine side to side by side. I just want to keep forever. saying it. I just want to keep worry. saying it. So um um and uh and then uh and then what's available? Well, that I spent a long time talking to a lot of people about what is available. Now, what's available a couple of years ago was social media. Social media is available. I can I can start to establish a voice um, anywhere, and uh, and then also I could build a newsletter and find other ways of building an audience and engaging them. Speaking is available, so I started to get really good at that because that's a that's a great it's a great way to make money if you know if you can get on that circuit. Again, it's like this spoken wheel approach. Yes, that's right. And then, and then, what are the spokes from what you have? And then a book then helps amplify everything, and so that's that's why I, you know that's that's a big reason why I did the book. And then I am looking at what else is available, and I you know I'm having very interesting conversations mm-hmm. with people about partnerships and whatever. And you know, I, I'll tell you, J- James, like literally, literally an hour before we hopped on on this call, I got this amazing DM from somebody on LinkedIn. It's like, I've never gotten a message quite like this. Uh, so I'm just going to share it because I, it's like, it comes at the perfect time for me because, you know, the book is launching. I'm very nervous about it. I want it to do well. And, um, and so, okay. 
check this out. So this comes from this woman. I, I had already asked her if I could share this publicly. So, cause I immediately responded. She said, yes. Yeah, so I'll say her name, which is uh, Ariel Jordan Cassidy. Uh, she describes name. herself as a fa great name. She describes herself as a founder in digital media and ad tech. Okay. So here's what she writes me. Um, she writes, the, the the subject line uh, of her message to me was, pre-ordered your book, your sales funnel works, smiley face. She writes, hey, Jason, I just wanted to say congrats on your book launching soon. I pre-ordered it today. I also wanted to let you know that your sales funnel is really working. I've always been a fan of what you've been doing with Entrepreneur Magazine, and I started following your LinkedIn profile after someone in my network liked one of your posts a couple weeks ago. I've really been enjoying your LinkedIn content, so I clicked on one of your calls to action for my newsletter because I, I put... I, plug the newsletter. Uh, I got the first one today and really loved it. So I used the link at the bottom to pre-order your book. Just thought you might want to know that your content and marketing efforts are really working and can't wait to read the book and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So like that, I, it's so funny to hear somebody articulate it like that because you know you often think of people going through a sales funnel of a sort of not really being aware that they're in a sales funnel. She clearly, because she's in business, is very aware of her own consumer journey. And so she was able to like reflect all this to me. But that was exactly what I've been trying to do for years. Like it's that, right? Start with where I'm able to reach people, which is entrepreneur. And then, you know, in a complimentary way, also shift people over to recognizing me as a standalone entity, capturing them in whatever surface way I can on some sort of social media, moving them into some more direct connection like a newsletter, and then ultimately building enough trust that I sell a product to them like the book. It it happened. It's crazy. Yeah. So um so, so, you know, now the question is, how do I do that over and over and over again? You know, the answer to that, which you've basically been describing, are identifying more and more spokes. For instance, the public speaking yeah. could lead to a broader network, which leads to either more stories, more consulting, more speaking, more guests for a podcast, more, you know, on and on. Your podcasting probably always, you know, could lead to, uh, and your public speaking can lead to more income, mm -hmm. which gives you more freedom and, and, and so on. And, and, and again, more, more access to stories, more access to leverage your network. And look, you know, it's interesting. Like you mentioned, you don't own Entrepreneur Magazine. And there are, there have been successful sites even recently, like The Hustle Co. or, yep. or Trends.co, which, you know, kind of were like Entrepreneur Magazine on steroids. Like they were so focused on like mm -hmm. opportunities right this second today mm -hmm. and what all the data was and so on. And they became a newsletter and sold for, I don't know what they sold for, but let's a say lot. tens of millions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we know those guys, you know those guys. Mm -hmm. it's, they're very, it's well earned. But there is opportunities like that right now. Yeah. So I, everything that you just said there is correct. And I'll, I'll add one more, um, which is that I have to, and this is for me, but this is for everybody uh, because you know, everybody's on some version of this journey where they're trying to recognize what they have and how to grow it. So I also have to be aware of what, what are the things that I'm doing that need to change, right? Like what are the things that I'm doing that, that I'm not doing right or that I'm not doing enough of, or how can I refine the way that I'm doing things? Because one of the things I, I really want to make sure I do is have a a great situational awareness of what I'm doing that's effective and what I'm missing. You know, I one of the people I spoke to in the book uh, is this guy named Jim Quick, who's a um, you know world renowned uh, yeah, brain coach. Yeah, very well. Yeah, he's been on this podcast. Oh yeah, great. So yeah, I love Jim. And um, so you know, Jim. One of the things that Jim talks about is uh, what he calls what is your dominant question. And what Jim says is like, look, you should think of your brain as a filtration device and you're going to program it to filter for thoughts and actions in a particular way. And we all ask ourselves a 
question over and over and over again that he calls the dominant question. And this question really is is like it's like the programming for the filtering device. And uh, and you can you can identify and change that question, and that can be a powerful way to shift the way that you think and interact with the world. And as as I as we were talking about this, I realized that you know my I think my dominant question is what am I missing? Which I think was trained into me as a journalist, where every time that I am in a situation, I'm I'm thinking, what else do I need to learn about this? What is this person not telling me? And so on. But then I just started applying it to my own life. What am I missing? So I, I think about that all the time for everything that I do. You know, I make all these things, but what am I missing? Or what am I, you know, what am I missing about what's ineffective and how could I do it better? Now I, I asked Jim what he thought about that dominant question for myself. And he said, he said, you know, like like every dominant question, there are good and bad things about it. The the good about it is that it pushes you to be extremely thorough. Uh, the bad about it is that it could drive uh, FOMO and you know a fear of missing out, and, and, and you know, and it could drive a kind of dissatisfaction, which is totally true because I, um, despite having achieved many things, still you know, kind of beat myself up about the things that I have not yet achieved, which is common. Everybody does it. But, uh, but also <laughs> like my, you know, my wife will be driven crazy because we'll, we'll be out with friends and she'll be tired and want to go home. And I will not want to leave because what am I missing? What else is going to happen tonight? You know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm working on that. But anyway, I, I bring that up to you one to help, you know, anybody think about their own dominant question, which I think is really valuable, but two, to say that this is also an opportunity to build into the way that you think um, some expectation of change, that the thing that you're doing is not perfect, that you are a, a product in permanent beta, as Reid Hoffman, uh, uh, co-founder of LinkedIn, likes to say, you know, think of yourself as a product in permanent beta. And um, and that what we're doing now uh, uh, works to some degree, but that we are going to have to change in some way in order to do better. We need to build that into our expectations. So, so you know, what aren't you thinking? What do you think you're not thinking right now? If we were to, <laughs> if we were to brainstorm, at least, like, we're not going to come up with an answer. Yeah. Uh, but but what could you not be thinking of? Um, What's a left field thing? Like, for instance, yeah. we're, we're talking about, you, and, and you've been referring to, you know, how to kind of, even leverage your personal brand further. Mm -hmm. What if you, what if, what if you went totally left field? So you just, you're, 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 here you are running Entrepreneur Magazine, yeah. which is focused on franchises. Why don't you uh, go in with a group and buy a bunch of McDonald's franchises and, <laughs> and use your knowledge there to build them up and then flip them and make millions of dollars? Right. Uh, that's a very good question. So I, I mean, I, I, get, I, I could do that. I would want to stay within what I feel like are my my core competencies, which is not going to be flipping McDonald's, but but I okay, this is a really interesting question. There are a couple different ways to go with it, right? Um one, I will tell you some things that I'm I'm aware of that I leave on the table. Uh um number one is that I have not committed the money because I you know, I'm afraid, frankly, I'm just afraid of spending it. Um, I have not committed the money to building out the kind of team that a lot of people who I compare myself against have, right? So like, you know, let's talk about Jim Quick, for example. You know, you look at Jim Quick's um, uh, uh, social media and, uh, you know, it is pumping. I mean, he's got, he has so much coming out and there's no way that Jim Quick himself is like personally posting all that. He has built a, a great, content team around himself. I have not done that. I basically drive every single thing through myself, which is the reason why 
it, I'm up till 11.30 p.m. most nights, like banging away on my computer. Uh, now, this is crazy, and it, it has to stop, and I have to figure out basically how do I try to scale myself, and part of that is going to be spending money. I've not been willing to do that. A number, another one is I haven't really taken video that seriously. I, I dabble in it, but I don't do it enough, and so those are the sort of missed opportunities, but there are other ways to think. I could quit. I mean, for all the like things that I stressed 14 million times earlier because, you know, of my fear of the CEO of Entrepreneur Magazine listening to this, but, you know, I could quit. I could quit Entrepreneur and I could say, you know what, it's time to like hang my shingle out as a, as a you know, as a full service production company. I mean, I have a, I have a company. I have my own company. It's, it's called Hey Pfeiffer Productions. It's a production company, but, you know, it's primarily a housing company for revenue for my book and speaking and newsletters and all that stuff. But I could... I could just say, you know, I've gotten everything that I could get out of this uh, role and uh, former editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine is just as powerful as current editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and it's it's time to uh, clear all this time that I spend making a magazine and, uh, you know, just build my own thing. I, I could do that. I'm not ready to do that, frankly, but I, I guess I could. Um, and if I did, then I would, I'd, I'd have to push myself to get really creative and start to think of new opportunities. So, I mean, there's there's something that's sitting there right there. I don't know. What do you think? You know, it, it seemed to me like you expressed that ownership mm -hmm. was a need for you. Yeah. But your what is it for and, and who you are is like, I help people. I'm the one who's going to help people adapt. And yeah. that's like this, this overriding vision. So when I throw that field out of that idea out of left field, it wasn't necessarily out of left field. It's A, a way for you to take, you know, ownership of something, mm -hmm. but B, when you do it yourself in that way, which is so different from how you've adapted in the past, it gives you an extra story and a different kind of audience to, to keep building that platform. Yeah. So, so that's why I was kind of taking a left turn instead of, you know, finding out what's, what's at the next exit on the highway. No, I, and I like it. I'm not saying that's a good way to think. It's just, I try to always think what's something that I haven't, what's the thing that I, that I instinctively shouldn't do maybe you know that's the question to ask is maybe i should do that right but, but because it's so ingrained in me that i shouldn't do it i i don't even think it yeah that's well so uh you know what it reminds me of is it's a it's a, have you ever heard um as a metaphor knock the flagpole down no okay so um, so Mark Randolph, uh, uh, the, the sounds familiar. Mark, so Mark Randolph is a, is a co-founder of Netflix and uh, he was the first CEO and, uh, and he, he wrote this, uh, this little anecdote in a, uh, in a, in a story for entrepreneur and I'm, I'm trying to find it right now so I can get the details right, but I can't find it fast enough. So I'll just hope I have it in my head correctly. So, uh, so here's the story after the Kent state shootings, these activists walked into a local McDonald's and they said, you got to lower the flagpole to half mast. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they were angry. And uh, so the McDonald's manager lowered the flagpole. Somebody else saw this and uh, was very angry and went to the McDonald's and said, damn it, uh, that is disrespectful. You got to raise that flag back up. And so uh, the manager raised the flag back up. And then the activists saw that the flag was back up and they came in and they said, if you do not lower that flag, we are going to burn this place to the ground. And so, you know, at this point, the manager just does not know what to do. And so he calls the president of McDonald's and he says, what do I do? And the president of McDonald's said, well, uh, I see you've got a, uh, you've got a delivery truck showing up in 30 minutes. So when the truck's there, just ask him to back into the flagpole and knock it down. 
right? <laughs> the, the, you know, basically being like, what's, what's the other solution here, right? Because what we often do is we get trapped in some kind of way in which we, we think that the only options that are on the table are the options that we can imagine on the table. But there's always something that can knock the flagpole down, that can just demolish those options and come up with some completely different solution for it. And, and, and I feel like that's kind of what your, what your instinct here is. That's what you're searching for is like, what's the knock the flagpole down answer? Because, because a lot of what, you know, a lot of what's in front of me and a lot of what I'm sure people who are listening to this and, and thinking about the decisions in front of them um, are, you know, are thinking is, well, what, you know, what options do I take that I basically have already thought of? And, uh, and, and it's possible that, what you really need is a, is a knock the flag pull down moment where you say no. There's there's actually a, I can create additional solutions here. Uh, it just requires thinking outside of the options I already have. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. It's it's not only thinking outside the options you already have, but thinking very specifically about the options you think are impossible. Mm-hmm. And and like for instance, if you just list, if you just make a list, what things are impossible, and you don't be ridiculous about it. Like you're not going to put on the list time travel or whatever. <laughs> uh, like the things you put on this list are, are the things closest to you that you think are impossible. Mm-hmm. Again, you're not going to say I'm going to be a plumber, but you might say I'm not going to be owner franchise. You're going to say I'm not going to, um, I don't know, what would, what else would be on that list? The things that you think are not possible. You're not going oh, to- uh, impossible for me? Own, yeah. I'm, you're not going to start your own magazine, right. your own print magazine. No, I'm not going to do that. You're not going yeah. to be a, a, a reporter uh, at a local newspaper. <laughs> and and so, but but that's actually a little, that's almost too ridiculous because that's a, uh, well, maybe not. Maybe I mean, well, it's not sure, sure. I mean, I could, you know, look, there have been plenty of people who, who have had prominent roles in national media who have then said, you know, it's time for a quieter life. Um, I'm going to move to a small town and run the local newspaper and uh, and you know be happy and be less stressed. So that it's, it's a thing people have done. I'm not going to do it, but yeah, it's a it's an option. I almost don't want to make an analogy to chess because I talk about that a lot in this podcast. <laughs> but it's a real challenge for creativity uh, in chess when you're playing a game. Your opponent and you mm-hmm. might assume there's a move you can't make, so you're both playing under that assumption. Oh, he can't take this because it's protected. Right. But that's often the moves that you have to start looking at first, because that's where you're going to find, uh, an opportunity that your opponent hasn't seen is looking at what the, the moves that seem impossible. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, I think it's the same thing for, for life is that, you know, some, you know, I remember one time I had an investment, uh, where I thought there was only one way out of this investment. Mm-hmm. And for years, I was trying to pursue this avenue. It was, it was basically do a kind of merger with this investment. And instead, I finally thought I would do the thing I never considered was just to simply sell the investment and use the money for something else. <laughs> so, because the, the investment wasn't working for yeah. me. So, I, so, and that's what happened. And it was great. It essentially saved my life at a time when I was going broke. Hmm. So, you know, that, that would be like an example for me. Yeah. Well, so, uh, this, I mean, this dovetails nicely into into something that I've thought a lot about and have written about, which and it, it, which is actually in the book, which is, um, which is this idea of of reconsidering the impossible. The I, I I got really curious about why I was seeing so many during the during the earliest months of the pandemic. I was seeing many entrepreneurs redefine their businesses in ways that that were tangibly valuable. Right, like they they were they were seeing opportunity even in the earliest phases of this disruption, and they were reaching this 
wouldn't go back moment, as I've come to call it. And I, I was wondering why, what's happening here? And called a lot of people. And the answer that I loved the most came from this guy, Brian Berkey, who is, a, I think, business studies and legal ethics professor at Wharton. And Brian said that moments of disruption force us to shift the window on what we are willing to collectively take seriously, which is a you know a nice academic way of, of saying to, that we reconsider the impossible, that there's, there's a band of options and uh, an sort of almost infinite band of options. But we don't see that because it's, it's very hard to see that, right? Like we have to, we have to filter something, right? You can't, you, we, would, we don't have the time and capacity to literally consider every option. So what we do is we, we build a little window that we look through and we see a small set of the available options. And we say, these are the options that are possible. These are the options that are good, that are valuable, that make sense for me. And those are the ones that we stick with. And then a moment of disruption, it often makes the options that we have in that window no longer work. And when they don't work anymore, we have to we have to shift. We have to look outside of it. And that's when we discover that some of the things that we had discarded that we said were impossible were in fact the greatest possible option for us. The thing that is hardest but is also our greatest opportunity is to do that even when we're not forced to. Uh, because yeah, that's a really yeah, good point. Because like yeah, you know, like the pandemic will force you to do it. But that's when you have to like almost simulate panic in yourself to 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 go along with your four step model here, which I think is possible. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I mean, a good way to a good way to simulate the panic is to imagine and, and, and you know, in a realistic way, what will play out uh, if you only stick to the options that you have. Um, right? I mean, how will I remember talking to this guy uh, Andy Monfried who. Who's has this ad, ad tech company called Lodomate? Do you know him? Let me just say, six years old, Camp Lakeview. Andy Monfried and I were best friends there. No, yeah, and <laughs> uh, he was the best athlete in the camp. I was the worst athlete in the camp. And as he reminded me, forty years later or thirty years later, it was a Jewish camp. So that's not saying much. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. But you know, he's a he's a. You've met him, right? He's a tall, yeah. big guy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A, he was a skinny little kid, of course, but he was a great athlete and probably still is. But we're we're good friends. Oh, that's so funny. Um, well, I cannot speak to his athletic prowess, um, but as a as a skinny Jewish kid myself, I can I can confirm that I would not have been much competition. Um, so uh, yeah, so okay, well that's great. So maybe you know maybe you know this story, but you know Andy started this company called. I know Lodomy. very well. They even yep. even at one point asked me to go on the board of Lodomy. Oh, that's so but funny. It, it, it didn't work out for various reasons, yeah. but you know. I actually owe him a call. I feel really, but this is one of those situations. Sorry to interrupt your story, but no, no. <laughs> this is one of those situations where I really feel really bad. I owe him a call. I've been, uh, uh, so anyway, yeah. I have to, well, that's I, great. It's one of those signs where I have to explain why I didn't call earlier and then I feel bad and then I put it off more. Yeah. Well, now, anyway, now you have an excuse, which is that it came up in yes. conversation. So, um, so Andy is so a low to me. You could probably explain low to me better than, better than me, but it's basically, it's an, it's, it was, it started as an ad tech company. Ad tech is, is, is an incredibly complicated world. And, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, you don't really need to understand it. So, uh, so anyway, a Andy built this company up and it, it, you know, it had grown to about $30 million in revenue and they were doing this kind of ad targeting online. And they were at the very early days of that. And then he saw, he, he went into a meeting one day and the client said, uh, so, hey, we're, you know, we, we're, we're going to not pay you anymore because we're building this ad 
targeting technology ourselves. And, uh, you know, Andy left that meeting thinking, well, that sucks. And then he heard it a second time from somebody else. And then he thought, I got to tear this whole thing down. And he said that was that was incredibly challenging because he had investors who were like, you're still making money. He had, he had, you know, and you're going to be making money for a long time to come. And he had, a, you know, a team that he had hired to do this thing and they were doing it exceptionally well. But Andy was, I mean, to, to the point you were making about kind of um, simulating that panic in yourself. I mean, Andy was playing it out and he was saying, look, I could I could run this company for maybe another five, even ten years, and and have it be successful and profitable. But the thing is that um, what we are doing is going to be replicated elsewhere, and we are going to lose the positioning that we have right now. And it's not a company that's going to grow forever. It's a company that's going to shrink and then eventually die. And that's just the fact of it. So he decided to basically kill that entire business. Uh, he laid off like half his staff. Uh, and, um, you know, this $30 million business completely disappeared and then he rebuilt from scratch and, and he ultimately rebuilt it into a successful company that it is today. But he said that the, it was an incredibly hard decision because he was, he was changing before he was forced to, and he had a people who were surrounding him who were saying, what are you doing? This is crazy. You're killing a very healthy company right now. And, and his answer had to be, I know, but I, I just, I just trust that this will not be a healthy company in five to 10 years. And if I wait for five to 10 years, then I'm going to have no options. But right now I have options. Right now I can act with, with um, I, I, can, I can act in control rather than acting in panic. Um, and now is the time to do it. The, the time to do it is, is, is the time that maybe seems the craziest and feels the hardest, but it's now. And he succeeded as a result. Yeah, no, I, I, he has a very, it's a very impressive story. And I, when I saw his name in your book, actually, I was like, ah, oh, it's a really small world. Yeah. Uh, I've even spoken at one of their, uh, I guess, holiday events or customer events, something like that. Yeah. So, um, it's funny. That's and so yeah, funny. He's very smart businessman and, and very valuable story. And look, your, your book, Jason is filled with valuable stories build for tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast and future-proofing your career. I feel a little bit like the publisher came up with the title because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it has that kind of like business self-help thing, but this is more, this is more than a business self-help book. Like this is like, you could read this entire book and not think once about business. You could think about your whole life, your career, your relationships, your businesses, uh, your investments, and the stories in there are great. And, and I, again, Love how you tell your own story, but you have stories about so many different companies, so many different people. It's a page-turning book. It's great. And uh, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. And I, well, look, we could even talk more about it. Come on the podcast again soon and, and let's have some more fun. Uh, well, thanks, James. I, it's always great chatting with you. I really appreciate it. And it was fun digging. I mean, I love the questions that you asked to sort of dig into me. I, I you know, we've... We've known each other long enough that I, I felt good and comfortable doing that, and uh, I wouldn't do that with everyone. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, by the way, I pitched the book at, with the title "You Come from the Future," and uh, and they were not. I love that not title that. much better. <laughs> That's what it was. You can tell my publisher, but no, I really appreciate it. This was so fun, and thanks so much.